Hello and welcome to the Ackerman Center podcast, where we explore Holocaust-related topics during the time of our new virtual reality. I'm your host, Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor of Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. I'm Niels Romer, Interim Dean of the School of the Arts and Humanities, Director of the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies, and Barbara Anstan Raven, Professor of Holocaust Studies. I'm so excited to introduce Portraits of World War II. In this new three-part series, Dr. Romer and I sat down to talk with three remarkable individuals and discuss the impact of World War II in their childhoods and lives. Our special guests, Dr. Reiner Schulte, Professor Frederick Turner, and Dr. Jojana Uschwath, are longtime legends at the University of Texas at Dallas, beloved professors at the School of Arts and Humanities, and brilliant scholars in their fields. In last week's episode, we featured Dr. Reiner Schulte. Today, we're featuring Professor Frederick Turner, and next Sunday, August 16th, we will conclude the series on a high note featuring our beloved Dr. Jojana Uschwath. We invite you to join us and listen to all three episodes of Portraits of World War II, now streaming on our website and on all podcast platforms. I'm pleased to introduce today's special guest, Professor Frederick Turner. He is Professor of Literature and Creative Writing and the Founders Professor of Arts and Humanities. He is a poet, a cultural critic, a playwright, a translator, and a philosopher of science. He is the author of over 30 books, including his two epic poems, Genesis and The New World. Professor Turner is a specialist in the epic, poetry, Shakespeare, philosophy of time, aesthetics, and evolutionary approaches to the humanities. He is a renowned translator of Hungarian and German into English, and his own poetry has also been translated and published in a number of languages, including Albanian, French, and Japanese. His two plays, Height and The Prayers of Dallas, have been performed in various locations. He is a fellow of the Texas Institute of Letters, and he has won several prizes, including Hungary's highest literary honor, and has been nominated for the Nobel Prize dozens of times. I'm so happy to have Professor Turner with us. It's my honor to welcome him to the podcast to be in conversation with Dr. Romer and I today. Would you please begin by telling us when and where you were born? Well, I was born in 1943, uh, in November, and um, so... Uh, the m memories I have of wartime are extremely fragmentary from 1945, I guess. But um, it, it's it's quite a remarkable story, actually, because an unusual and an unusual story. Uh, I was as I, uh, I was born in a little country uh, hospital in um, uh, Northamptonshire, in the middle of England. And uh, at that time, my mother and father were living in a gypsy caravan uh, that they had bought for 10 pounds because they had um, they had fallen in love um, and both sets of parents had disowned them. Oh, wow. <laughs> Why was that? <laughs> well, uh, this is part of the whole the whole uh, culture and and. Um, 
politics of the time. Um, my father um, uh, was the son of a Scottish actress and a uh, and a World War One fighter pilot, and the marriage went went sour. Oh, he was also an electrical uh, scientist, uh, electronic scientist. Um, uh, that marriage went south. Um, uh, he grew up as a, a, a dedicated pacifist, very left, very left wing. And um, my mother was uh, the d daughter of, a, of, a, of an ancient aristocratic and gentry family, which rather like the Sitwells kind of broke up and and uh, flew off in all directions politically from mm -hmm. extreme right to extreme left and my mother was on the extreme left end and so um when my mother's family her her parents um found out that she wanted to marry this firebrand poet uh, <laughs> lefty guy they said, don't darken the doorstep again. And, um, uh, and when my father wanted to marry this uh, left-wing firebrand lunatic uh, woman, my mother, my mother said, uh, don't, uh, yeah, my, my, uh, my grandmother uh, and great-grandmother sort of pretty much, um, uh, uh, sh sh you know, uh, shoved him off. And uh, in any case, he, um, uh, he was uh, he was a, a, a devoted pacifist, as I said, and um, I didn't want to kill anybody. Um, but he didn't mind risking his own life, so he joined the bomb disposal squad as a con he was a conscientious objector in World mm -hmm. War Two, which was really something. Um, and uh, he joined uh, the bomb disposal squad, which turned out to be one of the most dangerous jobs in the war. It was digging up unexploded German bombs. Um, uh, and th those bombs were set in all kinds of ingenious ways to blow up after they'd been dropped. Uh, they would drop and then they would wait for a given amount of time and then blow up or they would be set to blow up if they were tampered with uh, or if there was, you know, if they were moved. Uh, and so he lost quite a lot of friends being blown into small pieces wow. uh, wow. while he was watching. And um, but uh, uh, so they got married in a in a pub in Oxford, and um, uh, uh, and they had me. Uh, the 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 apocryphal story is um, that I was conceived in a haystack, and <laughs> if a Canadian soldier had come. By a few minutes um, earlier, I wouldn't exist at all. But um, that's that's the part of the story. So uh, they had to manage on their own. They bought they bought this uh, gypsy caravan. So my, the first couple of years of my two or three years of my life, I was living in a gypsy caravan. Um, there's one kind of wartime memory I have, and I don't even know whether it's an actual memory. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, my mother was in London with me, and I think she was carrying me. And um, we heard a V1 bomb 
a flying bomb, you know, the, the cruise missile going, uh, going, going, uh, uh, coming in over London. And um, it made a characteristic sound that everybody knew. And they really, you know, as long as the sound was going, they knew that they were safe. But when, right. when the sound, when it quit and just turned into a bomb and came down, uh, then, you know, <laughs> it was very scary. Well, one of them came over and uh, it quit. And um, uh, uh, luckily it went off some blocks away. So we were safe. But uh, it, it was... Um, uh, I dimly remember that. I dimly remember, um, I, I definitely remember the whole period of rationing. Mm. And more than that, I remember the, uh, in the next few years, in the post-war years, which were very, very lean years for England. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, how can I put it? During wartime, a country pretty much has to be systematically socialist. I mean, it has to be governed by the everything that happens have to, has to be governed by the by the by the government. And so, I remember, you know, my sense of England, my sense of of being in being alive, mm -hmm. was not sort of like a kid, let's say, in America now, where much of your experience has to do with, you know, friends and uh, school and um, uh, and shopping and uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, tradesmen and that kind of thing. Uh, it was it was like living in, sort of in a barracks. You know, it was you, you know you to some extent everybody was the property of the government. Mm -hmm. And um, so I do remember that, and I remember all the war. I remember sort of I have visual memories of wartime uh, propaganda pictures, you know, mm -hmm. uh, everywhere. And um, so I had that sense. And then um, uh, uh, when I was about seven, uh, my father. Well, by that time, my father had uh, he'd gone to. London University and got a degree in anthropology and he was very brilliant and he got a research grant to go and do anthro anthropological research in Zambia in Central Africa and so um, uh, at that time he had become my you know my mother uh, uh, and he had managed to reconcile with my grandmother with my father's mother and her mother and they were absolutely, they were wonderful, although they, my parents didn't get along with them very well. But mm -hmm. they, we lived in, in, in uh, Hastings, uh, in St. Leonard's on Sea, right by the, mm -hmm. by, by the sea. Uh, and we had a little, uh, we had a little sort of basement apartment um, there in their house. And I remember that very clearly. And my grandmother, my, it was a Scottish actress and a bit narcissistic and absolutely, absolutely the most wonderful grandmother you could you could possibly have. She taught me how to do public speaking and how to uh, and fencing, stage fencing, which may be the reason why I took up martial arts when I got. I was older. about to say this is one of yeah. the other many claims to fame that you are. Uh, what is it? Second degree black belt or something like that, right? Yes, I'm. I'm gonna. You know, if the if this virus ever left up, I'm gonna to meet you not, not in person. What? But 
that's why we decided only to meet you via video link and not in person we thought that would be safer for us but let's before, <laughs> let's go back to uh, just before we go to hastings i mean there's you know obviously the war but at the time you were quite young and then the immediate aftermath growing up still in north hamptonshire is there something about the landscape that that you would have imprinted i mean from oh, there absolutely. to dallas is a long way and you know i lived a couple of years in england and i remember still to this day this distinct sense of that landscape and of the yes. fields and, and of the moisture and all that is are those oh, memories oh yeah that stayed with you yeah it, it uh and you know you know when i went to university later at oxford a lot of that feeling came back mm -hmm. it's not that far away right but we lived in this little village called East Haddon, you know, the, it sort of looked exactly like the village in um, in Downton Abbey, you know, sort of a little oh, beautiful church, you know, and and I, I, I remember going back uh, a few years ago to the place and going to the post office and the post office was about the size, a little bit smaller than this study. <laughs> this tiny, tiny little post office, uh -huh. um, and uh, I, I remember that little post office from when I was a baby. And um, uh, apparently, and uh, well, we li we literally did live in a field. I mean, the the there was a farmer who let uh, who let us uh, use uh, let us put the the caravan in 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 a, in a corner of the field, and so. Mm -hmm um that was where i grew up we know you as as you know living in dallas yeah. you have a cabin in texas you yeah. sometimes wear this uh belt with that silver um you know thing on it which is the little texas sign on it but you come from very far away and from a place that is feels different looks different smells oh, different yeah. And so that's what you know what I was wondering about with North Hamptonshire, and then Hastings has its own beauty of sorts. It's like right on the edge there. Is there something about that that you know you carry forward this idea of, you know, I always think it's interesting if you grow up next to water because it makes you always aware of something that yes. is beyond and something that you can't quite entirely map out. Oh, yeah. um, and, and I think that, you know, often stays with people if you grow up that way, whereas if you grow up in a city where you have a pretty good sense right away of space and how it is organized, it kind of possibly shapes your mind in a different way than if you are. Absolutely. Uh, I've always needed to have greenery around uh, and uh, trees and fields. And, and there's something special about those English, those lush green fields. And as you say, the moisture in the morning and in the evening, and the, the uh, you know, honey and milk and, and flowers. And um, uh, I've always loved to cultivate flowers. I've done that all my life, one way or the other. Um, so then it makes, per then it makes, since why you came to UTD at the time it was a wide open field right oh, that's yeah. the connection right there right it was indeed yeah 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 uh, and um although it's a little drier and hotter here but that's uh, true um, but i sorry i jumped ahead so let's let's return to you were talking about how your father very quickly 
um, established himself as an anthropologist and was doing research in Zambia, which also meant you didn't just grow up in in Hastings neither. You did uh, move around quite a bit with your parents early on, didn't you? Well, I think I can't remember really. We had there was one family reunion with my mother's family uh, that I vaguely remember. I think it was in Norfolk or somewhere like that. Um, but that, but pretty much the only places I really knew were were you know East Haddon and then Hastings. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right about the ocean, about the sea. I've always mm -hmm. had a thing about the sea. Uh, I've always had dreams of of islands and um, uh, and of a sort of island ecologies. That is, um, uh, the idea of a of a complete self enclosed. Uh, self-generating ecosystem uh, and i well, i know that those things have you know interested you much more as of late and so that's where i yeah. you know was going with that whether well, there might have been back. you know in lots of ways that there was a very early foundation for that and so far as you really went the throes of of growing up in an environment where you saw this interconnectedness of of nature and space and yes and its fascination absolutely and the relationship, my relationship with nature, every, every, of course, I, I've learned to use the word nature in a very careful way, because I don't believe in the distinction between the human and the natural. That is, we are part of nature, uh, the most energetic and, uh, and disruptive part. Mm -hmm. but, uh, Dis disruptive or destructive? Which... <laughs> well, destructive, but constructive. <laughs> I mean, later on, I got right. into gardens in a mm -hmm. really huge way. And this became a very, a core piece of my thinking about gardens and gardening. But um, uh, it, 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 we would go walking, uh, we'd take a hike every every weekend really out in the in the Pennines, the, uh, which is only a few miles away from Manchester, which is where we were living. And, uh, um, uh, and uh, got to know those sort of, strangely prehistoric haunted places. One of the things that happened in, in, in Hastings was when my father had to go to, uh, uh, to Africa to set the whole thing up beforehand. He, so he mm -hmm. went for several months. And um, I, uh, I, I, uh, I had a terrible nightmare during that uh, time that I, I still remember clearly um, of a monster breaking through the, the roof, uh, uh, breaking through the ceiling. And um, uh, apparently I sleepwalked for the only time of my life, I think. And my mother gave me milk and put me back to bed. And I don't remember that, but I remember the dream. And, you know, I think that's a sign of just what an amazing father my father was. Mm -hmm. um, he, I'm realizing more and more and more um, what an extraordinary man he was. Can I, you know, obviously we want to first and foremost talk about you and what an exceptional man you are, and the, you know that'll keep us busy for a while to come. But there's something quite striking coming out of that. You know, we just um, 
couple of weeks ago, we interviewed Rainer Schulte, yeah. who's like marginally older than, than you are. And obviously you are sandwiched then and will be followed by us interviewing Zhuzhi, who's the same generation. And, and so in many ways, if one looks at your respective dates of birth and where you come from, you know, you were not particularly destined to to ever kind of come out of these, you know, worlds of war and conflict and violence into into these careers that eventually you had as as professors, as writers, as translators, yeah. and so on and so forth. But one thing that you know I find interesting, you know, you know, knowing from Juji in one way, and then from Raina, and again in a different religion. Where's religion in all of that? You know, your father obviously had a, an interest in religion, but great question of, of a very different sort, right? And I think. He, your parents do convert at some point to the Catholic Church, but there doesn't seem to be, and I've never had the feeling with you that when I spoke to you that you ever came to it from a perspective of religion, but you also never came to it from a perspective of going against kind of religion. And so where was religiosity in the widest sense and where you grew up, if, if at all? Well, this is this is absolutely key to the whole thing. Uh, um, my parents went to Zambia with, um, uh, you know, uh, so obviously with major intellectual uh, anthropological goals in mind, in terms of finding out about human societies. They went with a perspective which was structuralist functionalist. Um, uh, a, a kind of combination of um, the uh, structural study of uh, of ritual of sim of symbolism and symbolism. Of, uh, uh, of status and so on, and um, uh, and a kind of Mar Marxist economics. And um, when they got there and got to know the Ndembu people, they uh, that changed them utterly. Uh, my father spent many many uh, evenings uh, we, we were there all together for about three and a half years um and uh, with a with an amazing um ndembu uh i suppose you'd call him a, a sort of philosopher he was a spirit healer he was a um a, a, a ritual leader called muchona muchona the hornet and um uh what he and he studied uh, well as he as he studied he found out that the kinds of categories that he'd got from his Manchester school um, anthropology were simply not applying really mm -hmm. um, he he uh, had heard uh, from a previous well he had read uh, from a previous anthropology anthropo anthropologist work uh, Charles White that um, uh, the Ndembu were based on a clan system. And so he started asking about asking people, well, he learned the language and he started asking people what clan they were. And he didn't understand why they chuckled uh, and had to scratch their heads a bit. And then they would say, oh, well, I must be such and such a clan. And so my father was puzzled by this. And then later, the, you know, shortly afterwards, they started to call him Sanyinyachi. And Sanyinyachi means father of the clans. 
So my, <laughs> so, my, so my father thought, my goodness, they're calling me father of the clans, you know. He created the clan. Father of the clans, you know. So, so um, and what he realized later was that this was, this was typical of Ndembu sardonic humor because clans were completely outdated by then. It had been wow. 40 years and they were completely outdated. And the people were, people had, were looking at kinship in a rather different way. Mm -hmm. And this totally exploded that whole anthropological notion that, you know, the traditional peoples have been that way forever and ever and ever. They probably changed pretty much as much as we do, <laughs> except wow. that, that, that their technological sort of uh, alternatives are, are, are narrower, you know. <laughs> and what year, what year are we talking about now? Is this around 1950? Uh, 50, uh, about 50, 51 or something like that. Uh, okay. Through 55. Um, uh, I remember they had the Queen's uh, coronation at that time. And we mm -hmm. were still, you know, uh, Zambia was then Northern Rhodesia and it was still overseen in a kind mm -hmm. of lax and, you know, fairly unoppressive way by district commissioners who tried to make sure that people didn't murder each other too much and, and, and so on. Um, but to come back to this religious issue, basically, the, the Edie and Vic, my parents, were, were sort of more or less converted, as it were, to uh, the Ndembu ritual way of looking at the world, religious, mm. spiritual way of looking at the world. And um, uh, they didn't go along with the witchcraft side of, side of it, although they understood the witchcraft side as, in fact, a, a you know a, a brilliant and subtle objectification, you might say, or symbolization of stuff that Freud talks about in the way we, in which Freud knows that people can damage each other and make mm -hmm. each other crazy. Um, my mother, uh, who had had some medical training, uh, started a little dispensary and started to try to heal people because there's no Western hospitals or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, they, uh, I, I was homeschooled um, because there were no schools. They had a correspondence course. And uh, I'm sorry to say that, that this uh, lack of education has stood me in good stead the rest <laughs> of my life. But there was one particular incident which is maybe in some ways in terms of my life as a as a poet as a writer is the most important um well there was another one but um uh, and that was when i was must have been about 10 and my father was uh driving us drive it was just me and my father and we were in the cab of his truck driving along uh, dirt roads um and i think we were either going to another village or we were going from Mwini um, Lunga, which is where we were living, to um, uh, Luansha, which was one of the Copper Belt towns, uh, and that would have been like a two, two days journey. And I remember that the, the, the truck was passing through a, a grove of wild um, plum trees, I think it was. Uh, they, they were called mfungu, mfungu trees, and they had l little black and red wild plums. And um, uh, I, I was looking through the front windshield and I suddenly had this feeling of total astonishment that 
every single leaf of every tree and every fruit and every blade of grass and every every corrugation of the of the, the the bark on the trees every detail was done as it were in perfect detail mm. and i'd already done enough you know uh, you know i'd been well educated and i knew that things were made out of cells and the cells had internal structure and so on so it wasn't just a a, a kind of marvelous verisimilitude on the surface mm-hmm. you know, really good painted backdrop of a, of a play but it was it was like that all the way down and i knew mm-hmm. that there were atoms and molecules and so on and it was precisely like that all the way down everywhere and what it would cost to build one of those leaves you know uh, i you know I, I i you know it would take the gross national product you know sort of several years to build one from scratch you know exactly it was also perfectly done mm-hmm. and um uh, 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 so intricate and uh i think one insight that came out of that was that that the sense of the spiritual is not a sense of some vague mystical sort of uh, fuzzy wuzzy thing it's a kind of it's a sense of the absolute intricate technical intricacy of everything the the art of everything the precision of everything um and i suppose in some ways that might have been a scientist's inspiration but for me this was immediately followed by an even greater shock of uh astonishment about whatever it was inside in here that was experiencing it mm-hmm. i mean you know was it like a, a being projected on a screen in there but why was the screen experience what was it that was experiencing all of this and that was even more astonishing to me and of course you know what i was experiencing is what you know millions and millions of creative people or millions of millions of people i think have experienced one way or 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 other uh uh at certain times in their lives but being an arrogant little so-and-so i thought that nobody else had ever had this experience (laughs) And so I was going to tell everybody, I was going to spend my life telling everybody about it so that they would get it. They would be able to get it too. You know? <laughs> and is this when you realized that you were a poet? Is this when you began your... Yeah, yeah, that, that was, I didn't even, wouldn't even put it into those terms at that right, time. Right, right. It was only when I started to, I think it was only when I started to read, I mean, I'd already read quite a bit of poetry by that time. Oh, I had it read mm-hmm. to me um mm-hmm. and um and then later uh but it was later when i started to study poetry that i realized that that was what that was um and you know when i got into wordsworth and milton and and keats and so on um so is it awe that you you think stands that at the beginning awe for for, for the sheer perfection that seems to just yes, simply was, be there it was awe. it was also it was astonishment Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose, you know, why is it that way and not just a mess? Um, and gratitude, I mean, huge sense of gratitude which I've had all my life. I mean, just sheer gratitude. I mean, this is the gift of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, the feeling that, that, that it, 
even if everything went utterly wrong with my life, all I would need to do is just to look at a tree and really work at looking at it mm-hmm. and nothing else would matter. You know, you, you can't lose, you know, this, this, you can't lose. That's remarkable. I want to follow that up with a question then. Um, before your family moved to, to, to Zambia, and you, you mentioned that episode in London with your mother when you, yeah. you remember the, the yeah. plane flying overhead with the bombs. Do you also recall the destruction um, of the bombings or things of the sort oh, yeah. in that earlier period of your childhood? And do you think that this might have some kind of correlation, perhaps, oh, yeah. with the that, question that's of... That's a very interesting connection. I, in Hastings, Hastings had been bombed badly because it was one of the part, parts of mm-hmm. England that could be uh, uh, either the subject of an invasion, uh, the mm-hmm. object of an invasion, or it could be a place that could that, that Britain could invade from. And so it had been really pummeled. And mm-hmm. so I used to, with other kids, I, and by myself, we used to uh, explore um, bombed out houses. And bombed out houses are absolutely fascinating. They have a peculiar smell about them. And mm-hmm. it was sort of like getting into all kinds of other people's lives who are not there anymore. Interesting. It's very strange. Um, but there was that sense of chaos and of, of destruction. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, even w- when we were at school, one of the things we, when, when I was at nursery school, one of the things that I actually liked doing, although usually I hated school, uh, was... Uh, they would bring us uh, uh, sort of Air, Air, Royal Air Force radios, and we could take them apart and um, you know make new things out of them. You know, pick the screws out and make new things out of them, and so on. And so that there's that, again, there was that sense. Um, uh, oh, there's one other thing I have to say, and that is my first romantic experience when I was five in Hastings. I used to go down to this little tiny park, this mm-hmm. beautiful little park, which, which has some nice shrubbery. And there was a little girl called Christine, a little blonde, blue-eyed girl called Christine. <laughs> and, like, you know, we used to hide in the shrubbery and so on, and I, I adored her. So I had the, you know, I already so had sweet. a sense of, of how fascinatingly different little, little girls were. Oh. Uh, but well, God, I'm 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 sort of wandering. I'm wandering around here. But uh, I mean, what you're getting me to do is to look at uh, my roots as a as a poet, as, as, and, and that's fundamentally what I am. Yes. Well, you have various tricks always up your sleeves. There's the poet. There's a translator. There's a philosopher. There is the scholar of of of, of literature. So you know. Uh, we've kind of started to to get to know you in, in your various ways, but I think there's something nonetheless always, you know, that's what, you know, I guess where we were trying to get at, yeah. that is very specific in terms of where we grow up and mm-hmm. what it imprints upon us. And I think it sounds as if, you know, just, you know, listening to you there, are, even though you were too young really to have been shaped much by the Second World War, you recall and, and are marked by by its aftermath but then also yeah. at the same time you you grew up in a more rural area at first which mm-hmm. was the wide open fields and then you came to hastings which like you said was marked by destruction but also kind of on the edge quite literally of yes. of the island 
And um, then you had, which I suppose would be a fairly unusual experience for any little boy growing up in England in the post-war period, three and a half years of Zambia as a kind of formative experience. My first, my first real friends were um, uh, a little group of Ndembu boys. Uh, and there was one in particular that I, whom I, I, I idolized. He was called Sakeru, and he was already an experienced hunter. He, he, would, he was maybe a year or two older than me. And, um, and we used to hell around and, and do all kinds of boy gang mm -hmm. stuff in the, in the savannah. And, um, and so a lot of my socialization, uh, as, uh, as we say these days, was uh, with, with Africans. In fact, when I got back to England, I remember feeling distinctly, in a slightly racist way, uneasy about all these white people. <laughs> you know, maybe that's a good way of, of segueing this. Um, it would have been really a difficult readjustment then returning home after all of this, right? And then going from all the places to Oxford, which had had its own stylized hierarchies of sorts and a very ritualized culture that, you know, in part it has maintained almost up to today. So. How what would have that been for you to fit back into something that was so clearly marked by what we call society? When I got, but by that time, uh, I had become African enough so that when I got back to England, um, I, I, I really felt very much like a fish out of water. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it didn't help that because my, uh, early upbringing had been in the south of England, and I had a south of England and somewhat educated accent. Um, uh, we were living in uh, the industrial north, which has a very different accent. Now, I, I can now do Mancunian accent. You know, <laughs> I can do that now. But, um, uh, but uh, at the time, uh, it felt like a different... Um, like I felt very, I felt very different. Well, what I was fitting into actually at first was, uh, you know, my father got a, his first job was at Manchester University, so we mm. lived in Manchester, and he's really we, we really, you know, by that time there were three children. It was me and Bob and Ranrini, and um, we were all. Um, uh, 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 you know, about two, each of us, two, about two years apart. I was the oldest. Um, uh, so that they were living on what essentially was sort of a, you know, a, a TA's salary for a while at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so we were living, we lived in working class um, Manchester uh, with its lack of central heating and its miserable, smoggy, you know, industrial north. Uh, English weather and um, uh, and the kind of uh, long kind of economic hangover of, of of England where everything was messy and poor and broken and repaired and um, uh, and a bit authoritarian and uh, uh, official and um, uh, and so I yearned and yearned and yearned for years on end to be back in Africa. 
and the the things that I remembered in Africa were were, were became iconic for me. And so then that was when I started to write poetry because I was trying to, by writing poetry, I could recover in myself the experience that I had then, mm -hmm. that I'd had in, in Africa. So I wrote poems about Africa and that helped me to be back there, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, and, no, I, yeah. I, I could see how Manchester would have been difficult. I mean, you're like in the midst of, of a country that is still recovering from the Second World War. Yes. And kind of leaving its former glory as a colonial empire behind and that in the midst of of a city that had also been heavily bombarded by the by the Germans and yeah. so um that would have been undoubtedly you know difficult kind of environment um which had to come to terms without i mean you know the Germans kind of got quickly back on their feet but they had the Marshall Plan, whereas England did not. And so England has a far longer way of, of coming back into itself economically yeah. in, the, in, in its aftermath. And it stretches well into the 60s and 70s, at which point, you know, Germany, strangely enough, has, had already experienced its economic miracle of sorts. But it's the Marshall Plan. It's not, you know, anything else that does it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a very different experience that you have um, in during that time. Um, and then from there onward to Oxford. Well, um, uh, I, I, I got into the best uh, grammar school in, in, Man in Manchester and maybe one of the best uh, schools in England. Um, uh, my mother got, you know, I, although I'd had no formal education for three or four years, yeah, my mother had educated me and I aced the exams, I guess. And um, uh, so, um, so I got into Manchester Grammar. Manchester Grammar had a very good direct route. It was an interesting school. It was sort of really like a, at that time, it was sort of a bit like a, an endowed charter school would be now. Uh, there were state grants to go there. Uh, uh, but it was sort of part private and part public, and it was a wonderful school. It was very, you know, it was a bit sort of um, uh, Fabian, left-wing mm -hmm. Fabian as a school, and some a little bit atheist as a, as a school, um, although it was a private school. You know, I mean, well, what we call in England is a sort of semi-public school. I, it's, the terminology is absolutely right. weird, but it was a di direct grant school so that the city and the country would contribute to the to the um uh, uh, to to the cost of one's education uh, and um uh, so you could go to a really excellent sort of school that private school kids were going to and get a really good education so I, a lot of my classmates were really sort of just very bright working class kids um and there were also there's also a you know a fairly large proportion of Jews in the school, and um, as things you know at, at at first I think it was pretty tough being Jewish at Manchester Grammar School. There was one kid who was you know really soft, uh, rather silly, um, sweet, uh, completely naive Jewish kid that got picked on all the time. And I remember getting uh, really angry about the way that he was being bullied and sort of standing up for him. Um, but in a way, I was sort of standing up for myself because I felt a little bit out of place too. 
Um, so there was all the, you know, I, I got that sense of things very early. Once we got back, um, uh, it, it, it became, began to become clear as my parents uh, worked in the Communist Party um, uh, in the campaign for nuclear disarmament, it began to become clear that a lot of what they had thought before uh, was very questionable. And particularly my mother, who was working as a secretary for the campaign for nuclear disarmament in Manchester, um, uh, found out that, uh, that the money to support it was coming from the Soviet Union through a, uh, a, 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 you know, in a secret way. And we were sort of fairly horrified by that. Then Hungary happened, uh, you know, the invasion of Hungary. And so um, they, they dropped out of communism. I do remember going to communist party uh, uh, kind of get togethers and having a really sick feeling about it. I just, just didn't mm. like it. Um, and uh, and uh, uh, it was about that time they'd been thinking more and more about Muchona the Hornet and about the world of the spirit. And I had at that time already got my vocation as a poet. And as far as I could see, there was nothing in dialectical materialism that supported the experience that I had had in Africa, uh, the experience of astonishment, or that supported the idea of poetry. And so uh, I, uh, I, uh, I had my own reasons for becoming, uh, for becoming religious. And the only religion that looked remotely like Ndembu, good old Ndembu paganism, Ritual paganism was um, was was Catholicism, mm -hmm. the only one that was around at the time, and Catholicism was sufficiently pagan for my parents and uh, and for me and and ritualistic ritualistic exactly that that, that they had um, they they had not given themselves over to theology, um, mm -hmm. although that, there was plenty of theology and so on, but the real mm. the real substance of it was the ritual, and the ritual had in it um, uh, kind of, uh, s symbolic reality that, mm -hmm. that, that was, was fundamental. Um, and so is, you know, is a peculiar way of being Christian, <laughs> but I, I'm still in a sense, a great follower of, of Jesus. You know? In that sense. Yes. You know, that's what, you know, but it it's kind of you comes out of you not always in the direct ways, uh, but rather I think you know maybe also again going back to to what you described as this first really transformative yes. experience of of that account of the perfection in nature. Yes, I, I've thought about it since, and I think that I'm probably a panentheist mm -hmm. um, uh, in the sense that. Uh, I, it's not that I think that God is the universe, but I think God is the is uh, what you God is to the universe as the uh, as the mind is to the brain. Uh, mm -hmm. That uh, that uh, just as the uh, you know an ecosystem is made up of all kinds of different species operating together, then um, and the brain is made up of all kinds of cells operating together. I think that there is some kind of uh, larger integrative level of the universe, which is 
in some ways, I think, personal and divine, but on, on, on an inconceivable scale. So, you know, I, I, you know I'd, I'd probably go along with Spinoza or somebody like that. I was about to say there's an old friend of yours then in, in the deep past that could kind of be, but it sounds to me as if fate had it and, you know, luckily worked out well that if the path was in front of you, pantheism or dialectical materialism, that you discarded dialectical materialism because presumably it would have made um, not the greatest of poets out of you if you would have gone the Marxist route. And so in lots of yep. ways, I think we can be really glad that you went the other route. And and But it does remind me of something which, you know, is, again, you, you are like unusual insofar as you have these formative experiences very early on. You seem to identify yourself and create for yourself the identity of, of a poet and not of a scholar of literature, even though you're in that pocket as well, but therefore you never quite are uh, forced into the disciplining of the mind as many <laughs> others are that go. <laughs> well, if you think about what is graduate school. I mean, all along, <laughs> I can no, see no, that if, if you think about, you know, what, what is it normally represents which is an empowering experience for many students to get disciplines in that way because it allows them to view and understand the world in a particular perspective from literature or philosophy or history. But for you, that was only always one of the many and not going to be ever just at the expense of the others, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I you know, I adore literature, but I adore literature and world literature too. Um, but it's, it's, it, it, it's almost as a kind of, um, a, a, a personal thing, you know, it, it's sort of, it, it, it's like one's family history or something like that, that, you know, I feel that the poets, you know, the, the dead poets and novelists and writers and, uh, and essayists and thinkers and so on. Uh, are are friends that I that I have conversations with, um, uh, that uh, you know, and I you know I, I'm I'm a, 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 a terrible annotator of books. I I do terrible things to books, and the margins are full of um, arguments and talking with the you know with the with the with the writers, uh, it, it, it's uh, the, you know, I learned, I guess, the techniques of literary analysis and so on. Uh, you know, the way that one might learn grammar. I mean, it, it was a way of, it's it it just so that I could, I could read more clearly, you know. Uh, no, and you are, I've heard you a couple of times, you're very technical almost in the way you analyze, you know, on some level poems. You do the meter and you do it better than most other people that I know. You know, you can read it really in its rhythm and you analyze its structures, but that's only part of the way in which you make sense, right? But that's the, the grammar part, I suppose. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, yep. it, it, you know, learning that, you know, that the, that, um, the, the discipline of literary scholar was something that I had to you know, I, I, you know, I had to pick up and I sort of right. picked it up slowly um, uh, uh, with making lots of mistakes. 
um, uh, but it, it 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 was something that I it was like learning to read somebody's handwriting. You know that 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 it was something that I did as a means to an end rather than as an end in itself. Mm-hmm. I was always interested in you know what the what the deepest thought of the author was. And mm-hmm. my first uh, critical book was Shakespeare in the Nature of Time, and I wasn't. This was not just an attempt to 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 show what thought what Shakespeare's thought about time were it was to actually explore what time is uh, and time i suppose is my fundamental philosophical question uh, mm-hmm. and that's been a, in a major part of my life too i i'm just i just completed a big essay on uh jt J. fraser who i think is the the most important thinker on time um I died a few years ago but an, an amazing uh amazing philosopher and um uh, uh, and that uh that's an interesting one you know we might want to get back to time because i think there's also something really very particular about our time right now that might also really change not just you know in terms of it's a time in the middle of a crisis or a pandemic but i think it does throw you know kind of create a new sense of time and then the way in which we might think about past, present, and future. So we can return to that. But I got to have to ask you one question now after all the things that you share with us. As you know, as of late, you came to fame uh, by playing a role uh, of a man called Faust. (laughs) Yes. And so in particular, at the beginning of of, the, the Faust, there's very much that academic mastermind that however feels that despite all the knowledge that he accumulated that he ultimately is bereft of of meaning and is still longing and searching has that always been this kind of push and pull between you and the humanities that in lots of ways they gave you a lot but then it was never all that you were looking for yeah i i suppose i do have a a a faustian side um although i was never a uh, partly because i think my parents were such rebels um i i i had a kind of quiet sort of counter rebellion against you know the drama of being a rebel um (laughs) (laughs) uh and um the the you know, I certainly did, you know, my own sort of poetic afflatus, as as you might say, I recognize the same thing in Goethe, in, in Faust. Um, uh, the, you know, this, the, the, the same sense, it's not exactly a sense of transcendence, it's a sense of a much deeper and more total and intense immanence. Um, yeah, acting, uh, of course, you know, as I say, my grandmother was an actress. And so, uh, and being a teacher is always to some extent being an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, part of my problem is that I am strangely very nervous and I forget lines which means that I, yeah, I was never really able to pursue being an actor. Um, mm-hmm. But um, 
Uh, I, I, oh, I, I think those who saw you were different. You know, we saw you on the stage. <laughs> In a way, I think being a uh, being a poet is like being a playwright. Being a critic at at its best, I think, is being like an actor. Mm -hmm. One is bodying forth again. One is one is uh, um, uh, re recovering, embodying. Uh, the the spirit of the uh, of the artwork in in one's in one's criticism, and so uh, you know I obviously have a bone to pick with a lot of criticism that simply wants to make some kind of snide point or other. <laughs> and of course, Dr. Romer's mentioning the play that we saw at the Dallas Institute of Humanities and Culture, right? Yes, yes. And so that brings us right into the present time. But I want us to maybe go back a little bit in time. You know, you already mentioned that you had begun translating um, as a young man. And then yes. when did you begin the translation partnership with Dr. Ushvat that we, you know, know that has lasted so long, so many decades at UTD? It sort of, sort of began pretty much the moment I I, uh, I arrived. I mean, um, uh, Robert uh, um, uh, had me meet Juji, and we had a long conversation in the old student union there mm. um, in a booth, and um, uh, we got along really well. And uh, I, I, I said, uh, we were talking about uh, Hungary, and, and I said, do you know, I, I, I ran across this really good Hungarian poet when I was editing the Kenyan Review, and we got some translations which were clearly very bad translations of very good poetry. Mm. And, uh, and Juji said, uh, yeah, this is, this is uh, Miklos Radnoti. And, mm -hmm. and uh, Juji said, uh, well, you know, I know a lot of his poetry by heart. <laughs> so uh, I, I said, well, you know, if, if, if I'm invited to, uh, to stay, um, uh, let's, um, uh, let's translate a few poems by him and see, see how it goes. And so we did, and the rest is history. And it went um, really well. <laughs> right, that was, That's the book. <laughs> right. That's the book. Right, right. right. And that started um, me all off, and then we did some more Hungarian poetry and an anthology, and then German poetry uh, 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 um, and Goethe. Yeah, very nice. Um, and we actually wanted to ask if you would read, you know, one or two poems, perhaps. Yeah, um, th 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 uh, this one is a little poem, but it's um, very much. I think it's very much about being a poet, and. Um, yeah, lines written in a copy of Steep Road. Steep Road was a an earlier volume of Radnoti's poetry, um, and in the poem um, he is uh, and this very much you know I very much how can I put it it very much rings a bell with me, and in the poem um, he is already uh, anticipating that he is going to be persecuted, and uh he interpreted his pers persecution um not so much as a jew but as a poet and very much in the great tradition of persecuted and murdered poets mm -hmm. and he knew that they were going to come and get him at some point 
um, because it was happening to people all over over Europe. You know. mm -hmm. Yeah, well, um, Lovka and so on, mm -hmm. and then the, the Russian poets too. Lines written in a copy of Steep Road, and one other thing here, well, a couple of other things. He's talking very. He, he, he writes in formal meters, and so um, in, in part of the poem he talks about tum to tum, which is you know the way in which poets sort of make sure that they got the meter right. And um, uh, he, there are three important colors in the poem, which are the national colors of of Hungary: uh, uh, white, uh, red, and green. But mm -hmm. um, he uh, he interprets them not as standard symbols uh those he interprets those colors not as meaning some ideological thing but he translates them back into being natural the colors of nature uh, and so there's something kind of moving about that lines written in a copy of steep road a poet i'm no use for anything not even when I mumble tum to tum. But never fear, instead of me, there sing the spies of pandemonium. Don't doubt me for an instant that I take vain trepidations from the wind. Forsooth, this poet's ripe for burning at the stake because a witness to the truth, who knows the secret that the snow is white, that blood is red and red the poppies frill, that poppies' fuzzy-wuzzy stems are green, one whom they will kill all right, because he did not kill. Beautiful. Beautiful. And um, fuzzy-wuzzy, uh, we, you know, uh, uh, one of the critics sort of didn't like fuzzy-wuzzy, but it's exactly, uh, the, in Hungarian, it's exactly that. It's that sort of silly kind of cuddly word in Hungarian. And so, you know, I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I mean, not the translation, but the original. It's beautiful. We want more, right? I think some of the last ones, they are tragic poems, but, but immensely important poems. Uh, yeah, maybe I could read a couple of those uh, from the, the poems that he wrote in the uh, the slave labor camp in uh, mm -hmm. in Serbia um, when he had been uh, enslaved by the by the Nazis. À la recherche, gentle old evenings, you ennoble yourselves into memory with the glittering table with poets and young wives garlanded. But whither are all of you gliding, mired in the past? Whither that night when the quickened companions would pledge their friend the grey friar from the slender, golden-eyed glasses? Verses swam in the lamplight, glimmering green adjectives danced on the froth and comb of the meter, and the dead were alive and the prisoners home, the missing belovedest friends so long ago fallen were writing on their hearts lie the soil of Hispania, Flanders, Ukraine. Some of them, gritting their teeth, would plunge in the fire and went into war, compelled they could do no other, 
while the squad around them slept uneasily under the cover of dirty nights, they remembered their rooms that had been for them island and cave in this age of the world. Some, in a certain place, traveled in sealed boxcars, unarmed they stood paralyzed, silent, out in the minefields, and some, in another, went willingly, armed as silent, knowing this struggle here below was their own, and nightly the angel of freedom guards their great dream. And some, but what matter? Whither the wise what wine-drinking, the draft cards were flying, fragments of poems multiplied, and as also the creases around the beautiful smiles, and under the eyes of the girls, heavy their fairy light footsteps became in the silent years of the war. Where is that night, that inn, that table under the lindens, and where are the living, where the trampled in battle? My heart hears their voices, my hand preserves their hands' pressure, I summon their lines, their proportions loosen, I seek their measure, dumb prisoner, here on the sad heights of Serbia. Where is that night? That night will never return. For what happened takes on from death another perspective. There they are, sitting at table, hidden in girl smiles, and they'll drink yet from this glass who sleep unburied in forests deep and remote and in foreign fields. Sorry, I break up when I read that thing. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Mm. And actually, this poem, listening to you read it, actually um, brings to my mind something you mentioned that you recall when you were a student boy, hearing about the revolution in Hungary, the revolution of 56. Oh, yes. So yeah. I, wa I wanted to ask you a little bit about what your memory is of that. But also another important question is, when did you learn about what had actually happened during the Holocaust? At what moment do you recall this becoming kind of a knowledge about the actual, you know, after the war that it had been something more than just, let's say, a war? Oh, well, that, that had become fairly common knowledge uh, in in England. I mean, partly because uh, I suppose, you know, uh, to explain to people why we had um, uh, fought this terrible war. Um, and there were, I, I remember, there was something rather horrible about it because the, the boys would pass around magazines showing um, the, the atrocity, uh, the, the appalling atrocities that were photographed in the, in the camps. And um, uh, there, there was a kind of nasty, horrible thrill about it, uh, if, if, you, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, together, I think, with real moral outrage and real, um, real pity, but but also, uh, you know, there's also something of, you know, going to a horror movie about it. You know. um, so I, I did I, I did experience that. I, I didn't I don't remember feeling particularly political about it. Just, you know, absolute horror that human beings could do that. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
the with the uh, rather later the you know the the this the the uh, the Hungarian revolution there was good reporting about it and um uh the uh, it, it, that that was the final nail in the coffin of our communism you know uh, for the family um uh, 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 well that and the fact as i said that my mother was um, had found out that the campaign for nuclear disarmament was being funded from moscow <laughs> um, very very uh, helped my lifelong cynicism about politics <laughs> and, and ideology in general. I just had one last question that I wanted to ask you. Um, what is your relationship to England, to Africa these days? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I'm dying to get back to Africa again. I did, I did go back to Africa, not the same place. I went to Eritrea some years ago and um, uh, made some very good friends there. But um, uh, it, it, I mean, South Africa seems to be working itself out. And I'm really profoundly encouraged by the um, uh, the emergence of um, post-industrial business in Africa. Africa is now uh, now has better economic progress than any other region of the world, including the Far East, um, and that's very exciting to me. I, I, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a pragmatist in that sense. I think that you can't really have the good things uh, uh, in, in human experience without having a fairly solid economic base, and Africa mm -hmm. seems to be developing. Um, as for England, I go back uh, pretty, you know, most years, and um, uh, I, I'm still, uh, you know, I have dual citizenship, British and American. Um, and I love the place. Uh, I it it drives me crazy sometimes. Um, uh, I had I still have friends there. Um, uh, I, I you know I I was I was appalled by Brexit, but um, uh, I I sort of have to ex I have to accept that it was legitimately voted. For mm -hmm. and um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with a kind of little England. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I suspect at some point the Scots are going to 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 separate off, and um, mm -hmm. and that will be interesting too. Maybe Scotland can be more Scotland, and I love Scotland. <laughs> and I might even sort of uh, you know uh, uh, see if I could get Scottish citizenship. So <laughs> Scotland does break away. <laughs> <laughs> That's Very good. well thank you so much it's been thank such a you. pleasure talking to you and learning about your your background and all of these wonderful stories that you shared with us so thank you so much for being with us well thank you and uh thank you. The, the, you know, what wonderful interviewers you are and uh thank you right. again thank all you right. so much thank you for listening 
To learn more about Professor Frederick Turner, please visit his website at frederickturnerpoet.com. To learn more about us, please visit our website at utdallas.edu forward slash Ackerman. And be sure to follow us on social media on facebook.com forward slash Ackerman Center and on Instagram at Holocaust Podcast. Be sure to tune in to our podcast next Sunday for the last episode of Portraits of World War II featuring the remarkable Dr. Jujana Oshvath. See you then. Today's episode was produced, edited, and engineered by Sarah Valente.